listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message from Senior Pastor Robin McMillan. Good morning, good morning. Is the summertime here yet? I think it is. I think it is. I love the Carolinas, though. I love living here. Some people live where it snows six months out of the year. That would be hard, right? Anyway, welcome, welcome. So glad to see you. Welcome to Queen City Church. Anybody here uh, for the first time? A couple of people? Welcome, welcome, welcome. Anybody here for the last time? That happens too. I don't know why, but it doesn't have a thing to do with me. <laughs> Uh, me. Well, we are starting um, a study on the book of Mark, and we're going to do it um, chapter by chapter. I did mention Tim Keller's book, Jesus the Christ, which is his study on the book of Mark. It's a really good book. Um, I've read some things and some concepts and ideas that he has that really, really spoke to me. So if you want to read that, that would be good. So, why don't we begin by reading together Mark 1-1 out of the Passion Translation. I'm assuming it's about to appear. Why don't don't we stand up and read this together? It won't hurt. This is the beginning of the wonderful news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Okay, that was pretty good. Once is good, twice is better. You ready? This is how the Gospel of Mark begins. This is the beginning of the wonderful news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Okay, you may be seated while I adjust there. How many of you, if your food shows up on your plate a certain way, you're not happy to? Anyway, I'm just, just me being me, I don't know, it's all right. My wife told me the other day I was quirky, that I had some quirks. Quirks are cousins to quarks, and quarks have to do with multidimensional reality. I have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) Nevertheless, um, when I think about what I would like to accomplish this morning, there are several things, but but the prominent thing is I would like for any of us who are not convinced that the Gospels are not simply history, but that they're... I witness events. That's what I would hope you would come out with this morning, is that the Gospels are I witness events of what happened as concerns Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so in, in launching, in launching uh, our study, I want to tell you a little bit about What's in the book of Mark? I have very little confidence that you will remember this first part, but I feel obligated because it's the right thing to do. What's the book about? Well, obviously, it's about the person of Jesus, and he is both Messiah and Son of God, and he often referred to himself as Son of Man. Um, The idea of the Messiah, uh, the one Israel had heard about, had been prophesied about for literally since the Garden of Eden. Um, So it tells us about the person of Jesus, both Messiah and Son of God. God manifests in the flesh. Um, What else is the book about? Well, it's about the messianic mission of Jesus. I mentioned this just a minute ago. He fulfills the ancient prophecies to minute degrees. 
Um, what would the third thing be? It's about the work of Jesus, about his mission, his miracles, his messages, his crucifixion, and his resurrection, which proved who he was and that his sacrifice satisfied our need for righteousness, which is applied to everyone who believes. What else is about? It's about discipleship, and it's about faith. Uh, when you read through the Gospel of Mark in particular, at every turn, Jesus is inviting people to follow him. And to follow him means then, and it should mean now, a radical and total commitment to the lordship of Christ Jesus. That's uh, one of the primary messages in the Gospel of Mark. And the last we might say is emphasis on the kingdom of God. And so why don't we take a look at Mark 1, 14, and 15. I'm doing a lot of this out of the Passion Translation. Um, we had, some of you know that we're here, we had Brian Simmons here a number of weeks ago, and I have read the Bible for probably 45 years. And there's something that's happening to me as I'm reading the New Passion Translation. Uh, it really it really has opened my eyes to some, some things. Um, you know, when you're used to a certain... Bible translation, and if you've read it a lot, you're reading it, but you're not hearing it. And you know God's in your life when you start feeling like the Bible's reading you. How many of you have read the Bible and it really messed with you and it bothered you? Yeah, it reminds me of W.C. Fields on his deathbed. You probably don't remember who he is. You'd have to be as old as dirt or close to it, old comedian, lived a terrible life. He was reading the Bible on his deathbed, and someone said, W.C., what are you doing? He said, looking for loopholes. Now, to look for loopholes, you'd have to be convinced you needed some. And that's what it is when God starts messing with you. What was it Jesus said? I came for sick people, not for people who are well. You know, the primary necessary ingredient to have your life changed is humility. You need to know you need help. If you don't think you need help, you won't get help. And I have some friends who desperately need help, who don't believe they need help, and it frightens me for them. One of the, re one of the things that happens to them is they have recurring decimals in their lives, and when I say recurring decimals, they go through the same thing time after time after time after time with the same conclusion, somebody did me wrong, this is not my fault. And see, that is a person who doesn't understand how life works. And when you don't understand how life works, it gets way more difficult than it needs to be. So humility is, is a key ingredient. Knowing you need a Savior, knowing you need help, knowing that you need continual assistance, knowing that you're crucified with Christ, nevertheless you live, yet Christ lives in you. That's what it is to be a Christian, is to no longer live your way, but to live in union with the Lord Jesus. So slide number two, or, or text number two, is Mark 1, 14 and 15. Let's read this together too. Now, um, characteristic of reading this together is words come out of your mouth. Later on, after John the baptizer was arrested, Jesus went back into the region of Galilee and preached the wonderful gospel of God's kingdom realm. His message was this, at last the fulfillment of the age has come. It is time for the realm of God's kingdom to be experienced in its fullness. Well, how does that happen? Turn your lives back to God. Put your trust in the hope-filled gospel. Now, John the Baptist also preached about the kingdom. He preached a baptism of repentance. This is in around verse 4 of chapter 1. But he, he was quite a character. He preached a baptism of repentance for the complete cancellation of sins. And the Bible says a steady stream of people came to be dipped in the Jordan River as they publicly confessed their sins. You know somebody's met God when they publicly confess their sins. 
I'm not recommending you start today or this morning or right now. But there really is something about taking responsibility for your behavior. And it's an essential key. Repentance is not just turning away from sin. It's a turning away from sin towards someone. That's that's the full circle. It's not so much or only about not doing this. It's about turning and doing that. It's like a replacement. Anyway. Powerful message there. God's kingdom to be experienced in fullness, it involves us turning our lives back to God. My goodness, trusting God. Leonard and I were talking about trusting God this morning in the lobby, and I remember that old song. How many, you won't remember this. I'm not even going to repeat it. I'm wasting my time. Never mind. But it goes. <laughs> Trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other, what is it? To be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Some Christians who haven't come the full distance are some of the most miserable people I have ever met in my life. They haven't given up yet the right way and they haven't learned to trust and they they have have you ever met anybody smarter than god no i haven't but i've met some people who thought they were <laughs> the corwins really appreciate my comments they're over there on the second row snickering and the rest of you either don't care didn't get it don't think it's funny or maybe there's another category but that's all right Now, how do we approach the gospel of Mark? I believe we should approach the gospel of Mark as though we are reading a reputable eyewitness account. Now, if we we accept the fact that the gospels are true eyewitness accounts, they provide us with two essential things that everyone needs, meaning... And purpose. You know, um, we saw recently two prominent people committed suicide recently. And that's so tragic and that's so sad. Um, there has got to be, I have these ideas, there's this hopelessness, there's this lack of a sense of purpose, or there's a lack of a sense of meaning. And one of the things about hopelessness, hopelessness... There are several categories. There are several things to consider when a person gets to that point when it comes to taking your own life. One of them is there really is a chemical or a biological profound condition. Do you understand what I'm saying? It really does take um, counseling and help in a lot, a lot of different ways. But I believe the malaise that covers our nation of this sort of despair or hopelessness is a byproduct of a bad belief system. You see, when you put your hope in something that doesn't seem to be worthy, it's a natural, the natural consequence is a certain amount of hopelessness. But one of the things I've discovered over the last years as I've served the Lord is I have like a baseline. If I read or hear or listen to something that makes me a certain kind of angry, a certain kind of scared, a certain kind of depressed, or a certain kind of bitter and hostile, I automatically know there's something embedded in what I believe that has, as a result, caused me to feel that way. And I will not stop feeling that way until I change the narrative that lives in my heart. And see, there are people that will get you to quote Bible verse after Bible verse after Bible verse. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Obviously, it's a good thing. 
But if you have an underlying despair built on something you convinced about and you're wrong about it, no amount of Bible quoting is going to get you where you need to go. But the problem is to change your mind, you have to have enough humility to admit you're wrong about something. And so I have understood, and I've written a book, and I covered part of this. It comes out in August. It's 1795. Everybody needs three. But it's called Harbinger of Hope. And one of the chapters in there talks about the dichotomy or talks about or uh, analyzes why people are hopeless. Listen, it's pretty simple in some regards, except for maybe some of the biological systemic stuff, that if you believe the wrong stuff, you're going to feel the wrong way. See, the Bible is not just this book of positive suggestions. Well, there are four or five really good religions out there. Pick you a good one and stick with it. No. No. C.S. Lewis said this, Jesus was not only a great teacher. You cannot call Jesus a great teacher and walk away from his divinity. Because if he was but a great teacher, he was also a lunatic. He was also in need of being put into an asylum because he said some very, very bizarre things as a great teacher. He said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes unto the Father except through this one singular, solitary person who has ever lived in all time and eternity. He is either telling the truth or he is a madman, not a great teacher. Okay, I had a little bit of extra juice on that. But I love Jesus. I had a guy tell me the other day that Jesus and Mary Magdalene had an affair and the boy grew up in Spain. I thought, that's highly offensive to me. That is, you know, I'm not usually very easily offended, but I make... A choice to be offended over people that take exception to Jesus. Wow. <laughs> what, does he, what does he mean to you? I had a guy the other day that said, if, if God doesn't rank and file, forgive everybody, and if everybody doesn't go to heaven, he's a monster. I said, that's very offensive to me that you would call my God a monster. Let the record show. Now, I don't pick fights. I don't pick fights. But come on, isn't there something worth fighting for? Isn't there something worth giving your life to? It can't be religion. It can't even be going to church. But you should. Come on. Okay. I'm, I'm, uh, I want to quote a couple of things John Mark said last week about story or narrative. And I, I think I'm, I think I'm quoting this right. I got it off the, uh, the internet. Last week, John Mark reminded us that humans have an insatiable desire for narrative. Our stories bring value to our lives. John Mark actually said, your narrative might be you. And I thought that really was profound. That got me thinking because Everyone lives by an internal story. And when your story is accurate, it brings you joy and peace. When your story is inaccurate, it throws you into all kinds of feelings of chaos and difficulty. So it's so important that your inner narrative is accurate because there are implications to what you believe. As I thought about that, I wrote that uh, life flows and is primarily influenced by your inner narrative, the story in your heart, your central core beliefs. What you believe governs you, your choices, your decisions. Your decisions and actions are based on your story and affects everything in your life and everyone in your sphere of influence. And God will hold you accountable for what kind of life you lived. So it's important that your narrative or your story or the guiding processes of your life are based on the truth. And so one thing I wanted, wanted to do is read, um, 
about three and a half pages of the introduction to uh, Timothy, uh, Timothy Keller's book, um, Jesus the Christ, which is the study of Mark, because, well, let me just read it. This is so important. If we want to investigate whether Jesus really did live and die and rise again, to know if the Easter story contains even, quote, a grain of history, unquote, or perhaps even the key to history, we need to go to the Gospels, the historical documents that tell Jesus' story. These Gospels are named after their authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Much of the recent Jesus genre consists of argument over whether the Gospels are reliable records of Jesus' life. 200 years ago, some scholars began to propose that the Gospels were oral traditions embellished with many legendary elements over the generations and were not written down until more than 100 years after the events of Jesus' life. These claims have convinced many people over the years that we cannot know who Jesus really was. German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche and English author George Eliot lost hold of their Christian faith, largely from reading the the skeptical life of Jesus critically examined by David Strauss. And each year, thousands of students find their beliefs shaken in the same way by the typical undergraduate course in, quote, the Bible as literature. Well, there's a counter-movement going on, however. 150 years ago, it was confidently asserted that no gospel existed after the third decade of the second century A.D. But over the past century, the evidence has become overwhelming that the gospels were written down much earlier, within the lifetime of many of the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and death. This has led to faith reversals, as in the well-publicized case of Anne Rice. Who knows who Anne Rice is? She wrote all those vampire novels. Anne Rice and A.N. Wilson. The biographer Wilson wrote Jesus, A Life, in 1992, which presupposed the thesis that the Gospels are nearly entirely legendary, which means just history. Yet in 2009, he revealed how he had returned to Christian faith after years of atheism and of writing books assaulting Christianity. Novelist Rice had lost her faith in college, but when she began to read the work of prominent Bible scholars, she discovered that, and this is a quote from Anne Rice, the whole case for the non-divine Jesus who stumbled in Jerusalem, somehow got crucified by nobody and had nothing to do with the founding of Christianity and would be horrified by it if he knew about it, that whole picture which had floated in the liberal circles I frequented as an atheist for 30 years, that case was simply not made. Richard Balcom's Jesus and the Eyewitness makes, I think, the most conclusive argument the Gospels are not long involving oral traditions, but rather old histories written down from the accounts of the eyewitnesses themselves who were still alive and active in the community. Balcom cites extensive evidence that for decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, the people who were healed by Jesus like the paralytic who was lowered through the roof, the person who carried the cross for Jesus, Simon of Cyrene, the women who watched Jesus being placed in the tomb, like Mary Magdalene, and the disciples who had followed Jesus for three years, like Peter and John, all of these participants in the life of Jesus continually and publicly repeated these incidents in great detail. For decades, these eyewitnesses told the stories of what happened to them. See, the gospel is a story. The gospel is a narrative. A gospel is a perspective about something important. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote down these accounts as we have the gospels. Balcom also observes that the gospels are too counterproductive in their content to be mere legends. For example... It is astonishing that in the very foundational documents of the Christian church, we would have a record that one of the greatest leaders of the church, Peter, was an enormous failure who even cursed Jesus in public. That, that is no way to build a religion, right? Cursed Jesus in public. 
Think of a few cuss words now. That's what Peter said about Jesus. He puts it in the book. They cover it in detail. No one else could have known the details were given. And no one in the early church would have dared to highlight the weakness of its most revered and significant leader with such candor unless that very weakness was an important part of the story. And unless, of course, the accounts were true. That's really, really good stuff. Okay. That's one of the primary points I have today. When you read the Gospels, you're reading eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. Eyewitness accounts. The Civil War ended in 1865. How many years ago was that? What was that? 100 and 1865, 1965. What is this? 2000 something. It's been a long time. Okay, everybody. I'm making a point. It's really getting ready to be a point here. My, when I was six years old, my great aunt, who was 104 years old, sat in her wheelchair and told me what happened when General Sherman invaded the South during the Civil War because she remembered it. Let me figure that out. 1865, how many? 153 years. 153 years. How many of you doubt about the facts of the Civil War? We're still arguing about it. The Gospels were written within 30 years of the death of Jesus by people who had put their fingers in the holes in his hand, who watched the blood and the water spew from his side, who saw him shed his blood and die, who heard the Roman centurion himself as he watched Jesus die, conclude, surely this must be the Son of God. The New Testament is an accurate, trustworthy, eyewitness account of the life and death and burial and resurrection and appearance and ascension of the man Christ Jesus. I am preaching myself happy. And I already believe it, but there are levels of confidence. I mean, what else does social media and life as we know it do but erode a sense of faith and confidence and belief? Now, I have family members who believe I'm a Christian because I I grew up in a Christian household. Present company accepted. I'm not talking about any of you. Therefore, I'm a believer because I should have been. That is not true. I completely rejected conservative Presbyterian Christianity as something that had little to say to me, represented in some cases by blatantly hypocritical people. And I had turned away from the faith of my fathers, looking for a better way when I had a real encounter with Jesus Christ that turned me into the kind of believer that even my Presbyterian forefathers didn't like because I had become radicalized. I had been infused with an idea that Jesus continued to do miracles, that the New Testament was as real and as vital and as applicable today, start to stop, as it ever was, even when it was written. So I am not a product of a Christian environment. I'm a product of an encounter with a Jesus that was real and alive, that when he touch my life, something indisputable changed that I still have trouble articulating. Yes. 
Let's look at John 19, 35 and John 20, 30 and 31. I, John, do testify to the certainty of what took place, and I write the truth so that you might also believe. Is that up on the board there? Let's read that out loud. Let me, in this generation, doubt is revered as high intelligence. Now, I'm of an opinion that everybody has to at some point doubt their faith because they have to come to the place where they're convinced not just in what they believe, but in whom they believe. So it's not necessarily a bad thing, but when it becomes a badge of honor to question everything always ad infinitum, you are being affected by a spirit of the age and not by legitimate, heartfelt investigation. Now, I'm not saying that's across the board, but I want us to take that into consideration. John says here, I have written what I wrote because it's accurate and I wrote it so that you would come to this conclusion. You too would believe. Let's read that. I, John, do testify to the certainty of what took place and I write the truth so that you might also believe. Now, let me say this. I'm really passionate about this this morning. But the last thing I want to be is intimidating in any way, shape, or form. You know what I'm saying? But but you know what my biggest issue in life is as a 45-year, almost 50-year believer? It's unbelief. I'm not running around on my wife. I'm not cheating on my taxes. I mean, I could, but I'm not. Those aren't my sins. You know what mine is? To what depth will I really believe what Jesus has said and what he's willing to do? And so I try to do things that build up my faith, not constantly question it and analyze it. I've been through that. I had... Five years of that. I, I hate to say it. I, I spent five years after I was convinced in Jesus not reading my Bible, left it on a shelf because I was so disturbed and depressed because I'd lost all my hopes and dreams at an early age. Guess what? Most everybody goes through a period like that. You can't be disillusioned unless you've got some illusions on board. And the sooner you're disillusioned, the sooner you can get on with the reality of who God is and what he wants for your life, right? Okay, the second verse, John 20, 30, and 31. Jesus went on to do many more miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not even included in this book. But all that is recorded here is so that you will fully believe that Jesus is the anointed one, the Son of God, and that through your faith in him you'll experience, what was that word? Experience. See, eternal life is not just heaven when you die. It's a quality of existence to be experienced now directly related to your story, your narrative, your core concepts and understandings. Are you with me? Anyway, faith in him, you'll experience eternal life by the power of his name. The next thing I want to cover, why is it Peter's gospel? That's the title we put up here earlier. Well, first of all, Peter in 1 Peter 5.13 calls Mark or John Mark, as he was known also, my son. Um, there's not one of the, one element, there's not one story in the gospel of Mark where Peter is not present. And it's amazing. It, it, 
It contains Peter's denial of Jesus and subsequent restoration listed in all four Gospels. What, what kind of a man must Peter have been to be willing to tell that part of his story? You know, to me, it's so amazing that the sort of the founding apostolic man, Simon Peter, was a man who had a serious failure after meeting Jesus personally. Not even meeting Jesus like we do. Meeting, touch Jesus. Meaning, walk with, not just by the Spirit. There can be some delusion in that as well as reality, right? But he would tell his story. It appears in all four Gospels, in some parts in great detail. What kind of man would actually talk about how heartbroken he was, how much he wept after denying the Lord? The interesting thing about Mark is that Mark had a similar similar failure in his life. He had you can read all this in, in, in the Gospels. Actually, you can read this in, in, um, in the Acts of the Apostles. The Apostle Paul chose Mark to go with him on a missionary journey. Mid-mission, Mark either got scared or something, and he left, which put the rest of the team at a disadvantage. When Paul got back to home base, he wouldn't have anything more to do with Mark because he, was, um, in, under, he wasn't dependable. So Paul and Barnabas teamed up, and Barnabas said he wanted to take Mark with uh, the apostolic team on this mission. Paul said, no, you can't trust him. You can't depend on him. Barnabas said, no, we need to take him. Paul said, we're not taking him. Well, the end result was one of the most effective apostolic teams, Paul and Barnabas, split over this young man, Mark. Paul actually warned people about Mark because he didn't trust him. But at the end of his life, because Peter had taken Mark as his own son and poured into him, Mark became one of the most prolific second-generation apostolic people in the New Testament. Paul himself asked Mark to come at a point in his life later on because he is profitable to me for the ministry. And so the wonder of this is, when you read the Gospel of Mark, it's written by a man who understood what it was to know Jesus, to fall and have a problem, and to be restored. And it was the story of a man named Peter who knew what it was to walk with Jesus in ways only a handful of people in all human history could walk with him and deny him publicly, be publicly disgraced, and then restored as the mouthpiece of the early church after the day of Pentecost. This is an extraordinary book written by two extraordinary men who knew what it was to have to trust Jesus implicitly because of their own personal human foibles and failures. It's a remarkable, remarkable book. And only this shows up in the Gospel of Mark. It's another evidence that Peter is Peter's Gospel. After the denial, after Peter denied Jesus and all the apostles ran, um, and Jesus uh, raised from the dead, he sent an angel. And here's what the angel said. But go tell his disciples. Is that verse up there now? Go tell his disciples and... Peter, that he's going before you into Galilee. There will you see him as he said to you, or the Passion Translation. Run and tell his disciples, even Peter, that he's risen. He's gone ahead of you into Galilee. You'll see him there just like he told you. Peter could have been in that John Mark, or not John Mark, that Mark case, where people didn't trust him anymore because of his public denial and failure. But when the Lord is about to restore all of the apostles after his resurrection, but before Pentecost, what did he say? You go tell my disciples and you make sure Peter knows 
because Jesus was saying, Peter, I knew you in and out before I chose you. I knew what you would do when I chose you. I knew how it would be the worst day of your life when I chose you. But I knew this too. I knew when it was said and done, you were going to be a man I could utterly trust. Go tell my disciples and be sure Peter knows. I go ahead of you to meet you in Galilee. Peter wanted that in at least one gospel, and it only shows up in one. It's his. So, this gospel is written by a man familiar with failure and restoration from the eyewitness account of a man familiar with failure and restoration. Let me ask you this. How many of you have ever failed? Had something you're ashamed of? I love that. Let's keep them up. Let's make this really count. (laughs) How many of you have apologized for it? If you've apologized for it and repented, just put your hand down. There, There's no sin. There's nothing you've ever done. There's nothing you could ever do that if you take it to Jesus, he won't forgive you for it. And the wonder of Jesus is when he forgives, he forgets. People don't. That's their problem. But Jesus does. Who are you listening to? Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Now, I had a couple more things I want to cover. I'm not going to get to them, but I want to get to the last one. One thing I was really amazed at was that Jesus would say to two fishermen, follow me, and they would leave the boat, walk off the boat. And then he would go to their cousin. This, that, was, that was Andrew and Peter. Then he would go to the next boat where his cousins were. I can't remember the name suddenly. He would say the same thing to them, and they would leave. There's something about Jesus that made him so attractive to people. Part of the backstory when when he called Peter out of his boat, part of the backstory that doesn't show him the gospel mark shows up in Luke. It's when Jesus was in the boat. You remember the story when Jesus was preaching out of uh, Simon's boat, and after he got through, he told Simon, "Let's go into the deep, cast your nets." And Simon said, "Lord, we fished all night, we caught nothing, but nevertheless at your word." And so when they threw the nets in, they caught so much fish it filled up both fishing boats, and Peter fell on his face and said, depart from me, I'm, I'm an evil man. And Jesus said, I want you to follow me. I'm going to make you a fisher, fisher of men. And so Jesus will prove himself to us. I mean, you, you, uh, you, you can't trust somebody you don't know. When, when I know people who don't trust the Lord, I understand. It, it's, you, have to, you have to stick with it a while. Do you know what I'm saying? He, you can't trust someone you don't know. But as you get to know him, you trust him. So don't give up on him too quick. He's trustworthy. Okay, the last um, verse is in Mark 1, 40 through 42. Let's read that together. Let's stand up a second. Let's shake out the cobwebs. On one occasion... A leper came and threw himself down in front of Jesus, pleading for his healing, saying, You have the power to heal me right now, if only you really want to. Being moved with tender compassion, Jesus reached out, touched the skin of the leper, and told him, Of course, I want you to be healed. So now, be cleansed. Instantly... His leprous sores completely disappeared and his skin became smooth. I have seen any number of miracles. Um, Why don't you sit back down a second? Let me tell you this. I had a, I don't know what ultimately happened to this young man, but I had a, 
a handkerchief one time, and I was praying for this young man. I just laid it on his head, and he started jumping and shouting and whooping. And we asked him what had happened, and he said, well, I came with a cancerous tumor in my head right here on the back. And I felt like the Lord said he wanted to heal me tonight, so I came, and it's gone. The lump, the lump had disappeared. And I've got Don Hardister in here that's been healed more than any person I ever met. <laughs> he could tell his own story. He had a broken eye orbit. His vision went from 2016 to 2400. He had drainage going out of the wrong, the wrong ways. They told him he was going to have to have an operation. I prayed for him over the telephone, and suddenly his eye gushed, covered his front of his shirt. He ran down, put eye drops in so he could see clearly again, and your vision was either 2020 or 2016, right? 2017. He's sitting right there. Raise your hand. He's sitting right there. That's the guy this happened to. And, and then there was his migraine headaches. Don got so healed of a migraine headache, he had a sinus condition, and he went to get his sinus condition, and the doctor said, and, and this is for the sinus condition, and this is for the headaches. And Don said, what headaches? And the doctor said, well, headaches are how you know you had a sinus condition. You had to come in. Don says, I don't have headaches anymore. I got healed of headaches. And the doctor got mad at him. Now, this is living testimony. And then there's a guy the Lord... What was his name? John, somebody from Mooresville, gave him a new brain. That's what the doctor said. It looks like you've got a new brain. It had been, it'd been hurt from steroid abuse. And he messed up his motor skills. He got his motor skills back. He could play golf. He could play the drums. He had an MRI, whatever it is they do. And the doctor said, what happened? Your brain looks like it's a new brain. He said, he wouldn't tell him about Jesus. He just told him, I was taking your medicine. That's all he would say, but he'd gotten healed. And then Gene Hively had a stroke, couldn't lift his hand above his waist, couldn't lift his leg, walks in the building. And I heard myself saying I could have kicked myself. I said, you're getting healed tonight. And I thought, how's that going to happen? So when we prayed for him, I said, Gene, stick both hands up in there. We're going to pray for you. Well, I didn't know he couldn't. He sticks both hands up in there. We prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And I got tired of praying for him. I walked off, and we would pray for people like half hour sometimes. I'd come back and pray some more, and it suddenly dawned on me, I'm not going to know he's healed if I didn't know what was wrong. I said, what was wrong? He's standing there 20 minutes. Well, I couldn't raise my right, was it his right hand? I couldn't raise my right hand above my waist. Well, he got healed at the beginning. Now, here's my problem. I still don't know how this works. I'm as dumb about it now as I was then. But I do know this. More people get healed that I pray for than that I ignore and don't engage. So if you need healing, why don't we end this way? And then we're also going to have healing teams at the end. If you need to be healed of anything, why don't you just stand up? And we're going to pray. Some of you thinking, I've done this 10 times before. Oh, this is the one that works. Why, why don't we just be really over the edge? Why don't we just say together, I am going to get healed today. I'm going to get healed today. Let's say that again. I'm going to get healed today. Today's my day to get healed. Now your mind's telling you you're crazy, but has your mind really helped you get well? Are you going to continue to listen to that? No, no. What do we believe is going to happen? By faith, let's say that. I believe I'm going to get healed today. God's going to touch me. People are going to pray for me and things will change. Let's say that together. People will touch me in the name of Jesus. People will touch me. Let's say that. People will touch me in the name of Jesus, and I'll get healed. Jesus, do you really want to heal these people? 
Of course I want to heal these people. Now, uh, go find someone who's standing and lay hands on them, and if they're not enough people, lay hands on each other. You know, in other words, um, and Stephen back here, that's Mark, raise your hand, Mark. Yeah, Mark's daughter, I want, I want somebody in particular just to be praying for her. Vivian, why don't you go over there with Stephen? You got some, you got some faith, I know you do. Now, how many of you believe God makes people sick? I don't. I don't believe God makes people sick. Why would we ask God to heal us if God made us sick? He must want us sick. No, he doesn't make people sick. I believe sickness is part of the fall, and I believe sickness, the devil comes to do what? To kill, steal, and destroy. And the devil has things to do with people being sick. I don't mean you've got a demon you need to, you know, whatever. Maybe you do. Hope you don't. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to take authority over all the power of the enemy based on, and I'll read this verse. I am going to slam the devil upside the head with a Bible verse. I am going to say that Jesus, this is Colossians 2.14, Jesus canceled out every legal violation we had on our record, the old arrest warrant that stood to indict us. He erased it all, our sins, our stained soul. He deleted it all. They cannot be revived, retrieved. Everything we once were in Adam has been placed onto the cross, nailed permanently there as a public display of cancellation. Now listen. Take authority over evil, the devil now, because Jesus made a public spectacle of all powers and principalities of darkness, stripping away from them every weapon and all their spiritual and authority and power to accuse us and led them prisoner in a triumphal procession. So all the power of the enemy, we take authority over you now. Any spirits having anything to do with any sickness or any illness or any affliction, we do not break your power. The power you have was broken at the cross, has been reinforced by the resurrection of Jesus, cannot stand in sight or light of the shed blood of the testimony, the contract, the agreement we as believers have. And by faith, we release restoration We release deliverance. We release healing. We release a complete shift and change in your condition in the name of Jesus. And we're going to sit here for a moment and allow the Holy Spirit to enforce what has already been done for us. So Holy Spirit... By your strong power, by your breath, by your wind, we trust you to enforce healing today, health today, miracles today. In Jesus' name. Disagree with your condition. Verbalize it. I disagree with. I disagree with the bad back and the bad knee. I do not agree with you at all. I receive healing of my own in Jesus' name. I receive complete restoration by faith. I'm doing this for me. You do it. I receive complete. Listen, your testimony is the reality of God's work in your life. I receive my healing today. I receive my miracle today. I receive the touch of God in my body right now.
Now, if you had a condition you could tell is better by testing it, try it. Move something, shake something, wiggle something, try something. See if there's a difference. We'll pray again. I have no trouble praying again. Anybody know something changed? Anybody feel something changed? Just keep your hands up. You felt something shift? You felt something change? Several. Let's do this. Let's pray again. Holy Spirit, come help us. We release by faith miracles, restorative healings for joints, for bones, for backs, for neurological problems, for arthritis, for any malignancies, any neurological things, any internal organ things, any male things, any female things. We release healing now in Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you touch lives, that you're touching people right now. Thank you that your presence is moving, is moving, is moving, is moving, is moving. We agree with what you're doing now, Lord. We thank you for what you're doing now, Lord. Test it out. See it again. The prophet told that one guy to dip seven times in the muddy river. I'll pray seven times. You ready for number three? Come on. Lord Jesus, we don't know how to do this, but we know who does it. We know you told us to do it. Here we are. We release your power now. (laughs) We release... Faith-based confidence now. Somebody, I think somebody's shoulders are getting, who's got a warm shoulder somebody's praying for? Over here? Yeah, come on. That's a manifestation of healing. Let's agree. Abby Brown, let's agree. Jesus is healing me. Come on, help me. Jesus is healing me. We receive now. Oh, we receive now. How many times have we reinforced our sickness and our ailment? Let's reinforce the reality of Jesus. Jesus, we trust you. We receive from you today. Sarah, there's a fresh anointing on your face. I can see it. There's like a something on your head, on your forehead, on your cheeks. Of uh, uh, I just see the Holy Ghost over there. This guy in the purple T-shirt. The Lord's touching you. How many of you feel the touch of the Lord this morning? Just let me know. Yeah, just let me know. How many of you feel the presence of God? Well, he's here to do something, not just to touch. Come on. We receive healing this morning, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I disagree with bad knees, bad hips, bad backs. I just disagree. I agree with health and healing. I agree with full restoration. I agree with miracles and signs and wonders and healings and movements of the Spirit. I agree with unusual miracles. I agree with spontaneous, nobody even prayed miracles like Mike, like that police officer got the night we were prayed for Mike Dickerman and the police officer got healed. We weren't even praying for because Jesus was in the room and he touches whoever he pleases. We agree with the Jesus who still touches people. Man, thank you, Jesus. All right, let's do this. Lay hands on somebody again and speak. Just say, be healed in Jesus' name. 
Just tell them, be healed, be healed, be healed, be healed in Jesus' name. Tell your mind to shut up. It ain't helping, it's hurting. Be healed in Jesus' name. Of course, this is foolishness, but the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. So we release the foolish healing power of Jesus today in contradistinction to all the highly intelligent people who never get it right anyway. Let your power come, Jesus. Uh, Joseph, go over there and pray for Abby there in the back. Abby, wave your hand so Joseph. Yeah, Joseph has a little juice on him there, I think. Who receives healing by faith? What if you don't feel it? By faith. By faith. By faith we believe the worlds were formed by the word of God. The just shall live by faith. We release faith for healings in this church now. We release faith for miracles as a constant weekend Week out experience in Queen City Church now. We release manifestations of healing to individuals in this church who simply pray in faith. We receive that now in Jesus' name. We extol the power of the blood of Jesus. For without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And if the blood of Jesus has the power to remission, uh, to remit your sin, it has the power, the absolute power to heal you now. We release that power of the blood of Jesus. Oh man. Yes, we ask for more of your healing virtue to flow through us now, Jesus. We're not ashamed of you, Lord. We're not ashamed of your name. We're not ashamed of your gospel. I feel like just in the last three minutes, there's an electricity that came. Who feels that? Yeah, something is building up. Lay, lay hold of what you need. Call it out. Call it out as though you have it. I am healed of back and knee problems. Just, just call it out. Your mind's telling you you're being foolish, but it hadn't helped you thus far. Just call it out. It's yours. Say it's mine. I'm healed of. Yes. Come on. We receive it by faith. Simple faith. <laughs> More. Increase. Yeah, Tyler, God is touching you very deeply and very profoundly. Just let him have it. Just give it to him. It's okay. Not that I see this, but listen, I break shame off of people in this building now in Jesus' name. You've been ashamed of your appearance. You've been ashamed of the way your your body looks. You've been ashamed of how you were brought up. You've been ashamed of your parents. You've been ashamed of some of the things you've done. But that is not the heart of God. He bore your shame on the cross it is no longer yours. Relinquish it now in Jesus' name. Let that come now. Let that confidence come now to replace that shame, that self-focused shame now in Jesus' name. Woo, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Tom Machen, the Lord's touching you a new, a new time right now. He's washing, washing your mind, washing your mind. By the, the Bible says we have the washing and re regeneration by the word of God that lives forever. Mm. That's fine. Listen, if you feel like weeping, help yourself. Nobody give somebody a Kleenex to stop them from what God's doing. Let them go. Let them, let them, let them heal. Let them heal. Let it go. Jesus is touching you now. Let him do it. Body, soul, and spirit. He heals the brokenhearted. Oh, thank you, Lord. It's okay. Thank you, Jesus. Woo. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we honor your lordship. We say Jesus is Lord. We devote ourselves to you, Jesus.
Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Renew our minds, Lord. Cause us to think like you and act like you and walk like you and be good like you and be kind like you and be merciful like you and be powerful like you. Shaka. We pray again for Abby Brown. We break off that curse, whatever it is. We break off that condition. We release to you and your body the power to process your protein right, for your heart to build up, for your strength to build up. Uh, we banish all uh, weariness. We banish all wake up tired, go to bed anxious. We break all of that in Jesus' name. One last thing. One of the things the Lord showed me, I wrote in my new book, it was deliverance from what we deserve. It was deliverance from what we deserve. You did the wrong thing. Maybe you did it on purpose. Maybe you did it ignorantly. Nevertheless, you did the wrong thing. And you have consequences. Here's what the Lord says. I release to you deliverance from what you deserve. I take on as my own the things you did. I take responsibility as you repent and as you give to me, but I release you from what you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody okay? Thank you, Lord. Let's thank the Lord. Let's give him a little something back. Thank you, Lord. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.